Hello, you're listening to Playback Daily. It's Monday the 6th of November. I'm Louise Herity and here's some of what's coming up. Prescribers will also be allowed to extend the validity of prescriptions. So what it really means is just patients have more choice. So in your community, you'll be able to see your doctor, your pharmacist, you have a range of options. That means more access and hopefully better care in the local community. Mm-hmm. And it's it still today sounds like no other record on the radio. It just, no. because there's no real instruments on that record at all. It's all computers. It's the coolest tune. Yeah. Um, just so that they get to see what it's like. And, and, you know, if she's only just started school, she's probably only about four or five. Um, you know, it's quite likely that if she does too many things, she'll feel overwhelmed. And then some of those things that she might actually be quite enjoying or might come to enjoy in time, she'll get turned off. Pharmacists are to get extra powers which will allow them to extend the validity of prescriptions. It's one of a number of measures been introduced to expand the work done by pharmacists. Susan O'Dwyer, Head of Professional Services with the Irish Pharmacy Union, joined Rachel English on Morning Ireland to discuss. To put this in context, what happens at the moment? So at the moment, generally, people will get a prescription and those prescriptions have a validity for up to six months. So depending on the medication, there can be a number of repeats up to six months. And then at that point, the patient has to return to the doctor to get either a repeat prescription. And particularly if it's a chronic medication, they'll be on it long term and they'll have to get a review with the doctor within six months. Right. So under this new system, the pharmacist will be able to meet with a patient and decide whether or not they should extend that prescription. Yes, that's what we understand. So we don't have the full details at the minute but essentially the validity of the prescription will extend for up to 12 months and that's where the patient can come to the pharmacist have an assessment, they'll have a consultation see how their condition is, if it's stable and if the pharmacist feels it's clinically appropriate and safe to continue the prescription they'll be able to do so. What if a pharmacist doesn't think it's a good idea? They'll have that ability to make that clinical judgment and if they don't think it's safe or appropriate they won't extend. Mm -hmm. Pharmacies can be pretty busy places especially at this time of year. Do pharmacists, I mean, do they have the time, do they have the space to decide whether a prescription should be extended? Um, I think we'll need to have some conversations now over the coming months. So this is due to come into effect on the 1st of March. Um, Undoubtedly, we'll need resources to be able to support this change in practice because it will be an additional piece of work. Um, While pharmacists do this type of work on a day-to-day basis, doing a more structured consultation, which I imagine will be involved, um, will require resources. So we're looking forward to working with the department constructively to see how we can facilitate that. Mm -hmm. How do doctors feel about this, do you know? I don't know yet, but I do know that there was some doctor representation on the expert task force and they've made that recommendation. Um, So I believe that prescribers will also be allowed to extend the validity of prescriptions. So what it really means is just patients have more choice. So in your community, you'll be able to see your doctor, your pharmacist, you have a range of options. That means more access and hopefully better care in the local community. Mm -hmm. On another matter in relation to medicines, the Irish Times reporting this morning that more pharmacists are having to dispense unlicensed medication. What's the problem? So sometimes you have to dispense an unlicensed medication if there's not a licensed alternative available. So I'm sure you'd have heard there's been plenty of stories in the recent years and it's not just an Irish story, it's a European story and even worldwide there's a lot of medication shortages at the minute. Um, and where there's a medication shortage, if there isn't a suitable licensed alternative, then the opportunity exists to have the to dispense an unlicensed medication if that's available and if the prescriber, the pharmacist and the patient are happy to do so. And what is an unlicensed medication then? It means a medication that's licensed in another country. So generally you've got a medication that's licensed in another European country but it just hasn't been made available on the market in Ireland. Um, So it will be a licensed medicine and it will have undergone the same kind of safety checks that the licensed medicines in Ireland would be but it's just one that's not normally marketed in Ireland. Mm -hmm. And do you see at the moment, I mean, is it, are we talking 
talking about a handful of drugs or are we talking about rather a lot of products? No, I would consider it to be more a handful of drugs. So it's it's not even in double digit percentages, I would say. So unlicensed supply of medication, it's a small percentage of what happens. And generally what you'll do is you'll try to find a licensed alternative um, before you would go down that unlicensed route. I was saying a few moments ago that, you know, at this time of year, pharmacists they tend to be pretty busy. It's a month since the flu vaccine and the COVID booster became available. What's the uptake been like, do you know? Very strong, yeah. So straight from the beginning, it's been very strong. So we have people coming in to get flu, COVID, and also we have children's flu vaccinations going on both in the pharmacy setting and also in local schools. Um, we see from early figures, there's more uptake of the COVID and flu this year. So last year, I think about 40% of people who were getting maybe flu and COVID, whereas this year people are understanding that message around topping up your winter protection and getting both vaccines. So we're seeing that over 60% are probably availing of that option. Does that surprise you? Because I think there had maybe been a perception that the numbers getting the COVID booster, that that they had tailed off to a degree already and that, that, that this was likely to continue. That had happened, but actually we're seeing strong uptake now. So I think you're kind of almost nearly into this annual or biannual booster programme for people who are at risk. Um, And the HSE have been very clear around getting both. And when you have patients coming in for flu anyway, getting the COVID together at that time, it's safe and effective to do so. And people seem to be taking up that option. That was Susan O'Dwyer on Morning Ireland. And the topic was also discussed on today with Claire Byrne. And the host was joined by Sheena Mitchell, pharmacist at Milltown Total Health Pharmacy, and Cathy Maher, a pharmacist in Dalik County Meath and chair of the IPU Pharmacy Contractors Committee. Uh, Cathy, can I start with you? Your reaction to that decision announced this morning by the Minister for Health, will it make much of a difference? Good morning, Claire. Absolutely. It's a very welcome first recommendation from the expert task force. And what I would like to see is that it paves the way for other services. But in terms of the recommendation as it's outlined, we're really looking forward to seeing the detail. What I'd expect is as a pharmacist, I'll be able to use my clinical skills, provide patient assessments and decide then if it's appropriate for prescription to be extended up to 12 months. That gives great access to care to patients. They have access to a clinical professional at any time of the day and they can come in then and have that consultation. So it frees up GP time, reduces the demand on GP practice but allows pharmacists practice to the top of their scope of practice. Sheena, do you agree with all of that? I do, but I'm a bit more sceptical and possibly <laughs> a little less patient than Cathy. I absolutely agree that it's a great first step and it shows a level of engagement that has long since been promised to us. And for the patient's perspective, do you know, in effect, they're going to save money on GP appointments. However, there's a few things that do concern me about it. The first is that they're saying it's going to take place starting March 2024. Like we already have COVID regulations in place, which extended um, our ability to dispense a prescription where clinically appropriate appropriate when the GPs weren't available from six to nine months. So for me, it's a little bit smoke and mirrors. I was hoping for a lot more from the first announcement. I think realistically, we could do a lot more to improve patient care if we were properly funded to. I think extending time between patients' visits to a clinical healthcare professional is fine. But what's it doing to promote positive health? 
health. If pharmacists were appropriately funded, we'd be able to do clinical review and intervention on so many things like asthma control, asthma care plans, blood pressure management and a lot more roles. So it is a start, but no, I I personally find it lacking. Mm -hmm. Well, Cathy, I know there were a lot more um, issues that you wanted to see addressed coming Mm -hmm. from the expert group. And given that the pace, as Sheena has explained, is quite slow, does that mean you're not hopeful that those changes will happen now in a timely fashion? Absolutely not. I've been actively engaged with the Department of Health since the summer and this task force was only set up relatively recently and they were tasked to report back by the end of October. So it's been, in terms of department speed, and you'd be familiar with this, Claire, it's been pretty quick. And the second part of the recommendation is due to come out at the end of January. And with that, I'd expect to see something around contraception without prescription, a minor ailment service being produced, and also a serious shortage protocol, which comes to the second point of today in terms of medicine shortages. But Sheena's absolutely right. We cannot expect to do new work practices without resources being funded to the sector. And this would be a new work practice. The COVID regulations allowed us to extend prescriptions, but what involved in this, and i reading the department's press release, would envisage a con- structured consultation with the patient. And that's very different to what we're doing currently with the COVID regs. So I would expect to sit down as a clinical professional with a patient and make that decision whether it's safe and effective to enhance that prescription or expand that prescription for up to 12 months. So I think it's a really welcome first step. And it's the first time the Department of Health really acknowledged the role of pharmacists and what they can play in terms of community health and primary health care. So I think we're the very welcome first step The 1st of March is not very far away and when I saw this and I know how long it takes to get things enacted, we have really only November, December, January into February and this will be, we've got the full details of the plan out. We are working constructively with the department currently and I look forward to working with them in the coming weeks and months. So just to get a sense of what you mean by the extra time and resources you think this is going to take away from what you're currently doing, Sheena, you will have to step away from the counter, go into a private room with somebody to discuss the safety and efficacy around extending this prescription. Is that what you envisage happening? Yeah, and I actually am, like Cathy, really excited about, you know, widening our role in that way. And I think we can work from that in so many different areas, like mentioning asthma, blood pressure, and even engaging on antimicrobial resistance, which in my opinion is a huge threat to our health system. However... I just feel that, you know, this is frustrating and I know Cathy is in a different role engaged with the department, but as a regular community pharmacist who isn't part of the union, um, isn't an active, I suppose, you know, taking an active role in negotiations, it is shocking for us to find this kind of statement released in the papers where we hear nothing about any support that we're going to be provided with. We've already been asking for a very overdue fee increase to allow us to increase our support teams, which then will allow the pharmacist to step away from the dispensary and engage at a more meaningful level with the patient. And that 100% is what needs to happen. And it can really improve patient outcomes and even reduce, you know, unnecessary medications, improve lifestyle factors, you know, like even if you look at blood pressure, like lifestyle changes can actually, you know, do the same job as one antihypertensive med if you get it right. And we're perfectly placed to keep an eye on that and to roll out that service to optimise patient care. Mm -hmm. But without, like, I'm disheartened from the lack of engagement on funding, as I know are a lot of my colleagues. So nothing has been made clear to me that says we're going to be funded to do this. Well, Cathy, do you have any news on that? 
well, I suppose like with any new work practice, it can't be done without resources being put in place. And that will be the detail that will be worked out over the coming weeks and months. But there is nothing concrete on that now from this press statement from the department. This press statement only landed this morning, but I suppose... In terms of structured consultations, we know to free up GP care and invite patients into pharmacies, a structured consultation, as Sheena said, does take time. If I deliver, I'm in my pharmacy today. If I'm doing flu vaccines today, that takes me off the pharmacy floor and into the consultation room. And that's what a consultation around a prescription extension will do. So there will be, I would expect, resources to enforce any kind of new work practice, but that will come out in the detail in the coming weeks. I suppose to see... The announcement is a really welcome move and ultimately what we're all about is improved patient care and we know that we want the right care at the right door and pharmacy is the right door for so many areas. Patients prefer to be treated in their community and GPs are under pressure. I know in my own area so many GPs are retiring soon. So GPs are under pressure and it's right and proper that patients can have that access. So always about patient care. That's what we are planning to do as pharmacists. Okay. Right, let's talk about what's happening with medicine shortages, Sheena, because I know we spoke a number of times at the start of the year and back last year as well about medicines that you just couldn't get your hands on. What's happening now? Yeah, so unfortunately, the situation is rolling on. And as Cathy mentioned there, we're hopeful for a serious shortage protocol, which would help us to deal with it in a less time consuming way on a pharmacy level. But for example, at the moment, there are certain antibiotics which are unavailable. Um, some of them, incidentally, I mentioned they're antimicrobial resistance and it might be no harm that they're unavailable because they're not actually recommended to be prescribed and are over prescribed in our communities. But, you know, the I suppose the issue doesn't just lie with antibiotics. It's often things like inhalers, like, for example, there's a reliever inhaler, which is commonly prescribed to children, which is unavailable in all pediatric strengths. So that means we're then sending those patients back into the GP clinics for, you know, a change in medication. It's the same with conjunctivitis and eye infection treatments. Both of those main antibiotics are unavailable. There's pressures coming on certain blood pressure medications um, like amlodipine 10. Certain generics are, you know, unavailable and the same with atenolol. And this leaves a lot of problems because first of all, you have a scenario where it once one generic company runs out of the runs out of a particular drug pressure is then put on the other generic companies and suddenly we see their stock disappearing too because generic companies don't produce more than they normally need because it's not cost effective with reference pricing you know we've been paying our generic companies less and less and less for these medications which are off patent and as a result more companies have been pulling lines from Ireland and you know just not bothering to serve us like why would they sell us medication, you know, for example, for a euro when they could get maybe two euro in Germany for it. Mm -hmm. Like we are an island, we're quite small and irrelevant in the global market. And I think we need to be more proactive at remembering that. And Cathy, I mean, that's very frustrating for your mm-hmm. for yourselves and for the patients as well who you're serving. Do you think people understand what you're facing on the supply side? I think there's a challenge getting that message through to the public because pharmacists really want to look after the public and I know 
most of the public don't realise the scramble that can go on, as Sheena has outlined, sometimes just to source a medicine for a patient. I've had many interventions just this morning in the pharmacy where I've tried to source other other um, medicines and we've also received many phone calls from patients who are trying to phone around and see what pharmacies have certain medicines in stock. So it is a scramble and I'd like to see something like a serious shortage protocol put in place that will again allow pharmacists and the clinical expertise, because we are the medicines experts, something like that put in place as soon as possible. We all remember last winter, we had a high surge of respiratory illness and a lot of antimicrobials, antibiotics weren't available. And it was very distressing for patients, particularly parents of young children, for healthcare professionals such as ourselves and for prescribers. So we don't want a situation like that. I'd like to see a serious shortage protocol enacted as soon as possible. And we had the Minister for Health stand at our conference about two weeks ago to say that he'd like to see something like this in place soon too. Mm-hmm. It won't address all of the problems because Sheena has outlined some of them, even in terms of the size of our country, small population or an island, all of that has an impact. But if we were able to use our clinical skill and move from one therapeutic substance to another, then we could avoid treatment delay for patients. Okay. Pharmacists Cathy Maher and Sheena Mitchell on Today with Claire Byrne. Well, tickets for Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band in Ireland next year went on sale this morning. There will be four concerts next May in Belfast, Cork, Kilkenny and Croke Park. And as always, the demand was huge. Ken Sweeney, showbiz editor with The Sun, spoke to Morning Ireland about the enduring appeal of The Boss. Are you kidding me? It's like three hours. I mean, Bruce plays so many songs. Listen, like I, should, I, I should actually say, point out that um, I've been to see him more times than I can remember myself, starting with Slane back in 1985. But go on, you answer the question. Yeah, I mean, listen, Bruce just plays and plays. He plays for three hours. You'd be so scared that Bruce would be waiting outside in the car park to play you a few more songs. The, the performance he puts into it, I spoke to Peter Aiken last week of Aiken Promotions, and he said... Bruce is 74, but he's in the body of a 40-year-old man. He's out there. There's no one quite like him. He's an absolute legend. And what's great is, this time he's coming back, he's playing around Ireland. Bruce Springsteen is the pat short of international pop stars. He loves Kilkenny. He's playing down in Kilkenny. He's playing uh, He's playing Cork. He's playing Belfast. He's playing Dublin. I logged on at 8.10. At 8.40, I could buy some tickets. So it is working. It is going. And it's, they're going to be great shows. He has been ill, though, which led to part of the American tour being deferred. Is there a sense among fans that this might be the last time people get to hear him and see him with the full band? Well, I don't think so. I mean, I've heard this so many times. Um, I've just referred to his fitness there. It's a minor stomach ailment. And I spoke to Peter Aiken for the Irish Sun last week and he said that Bruce is a very fit man. Bruce loves playing Ireland. I mean, and you know, there's sometimes talk about going to see Bruce overseas. Why would you do that when it's the atmosphere in Ireland? I mean, I was at the last gigs in the RDS. The crowd was singing along with him. Bruce Springsteen gets that. He's down in Leo Burdocks. He's in the long haul. He loves the place. And you get a special atmosphere when you see Bruce in Ireland and he loves coming back here is it the last gigs by Bruce I doubt it given how fit he was and how good the performance was last time Yeah you ask why people would go abroad I suppose one of the reasons is this tickets are increasingly expensive hotel rooms are incredibly expensive and I've seen several suggestions online over the past few days from people who said that it might be cheaper to go to Cardiff or Sunderland or somewhere nearby 
Well, I'd I'd rather get the points up the long haul than go and see him in Dublin. Bruce Bruce Springsteen speaking to Rolling Stone described the ticket prices on his tickets on this tour. It's about 150 euros. I'd say is totally affordable. He's talking about totally affordable ticket prices. It's an atmosphere in Dublin. It's Ireland. I mean, listen, I spent a long time living in England. I came back to live in Ireland because I love living in Ireland. If I was going to see Bruce Springsteen, I'd rather see him in Ireland. If it's an extra 20 or 30 quid, I don't mind paying that extra mm-hmm. bit. There is a broader issue here, though, isn't there? about ticket prices and about the way they've gone up and up and up over the past few years. Well, I think people will pay out money to see legends. And I mean, I was just looking at the, the Twitter feed there. People are talking about they're getting together with their school friends to go and see Bruce uh, playing on this tour. It's a legend. You're going to see somebody, you know, like you're going to see an absolute legend, an absolute megastar. And I think people are prepared to to pay out the money uh, for that sort of experience. And uh, I like it this this time, Bruce. There's no VIPs. There's no gold circle. There's no there's only signing up, you know, uh, to to uh, to some sort of fan club list or, or pre-registering or anything like that. The people who went online this morning were able to buy tickets, and I I think that's great. And I think that that's very much in in who Bruce is and the sort of performance he's putting it on how he treats his fans I take it you'll be going yourself absolutely absolutely (laughs) that was Ken Sweeney showbiz editor with The Sun on Morning Ireland Well, this week, the streets of Dublin come alive with the celebration of the power of books and the joy of reading. The annual Dublin Book Festival will be holding events across the city as they celebrate some of Ireland's finest writers and illustrators. And Evelyn O'Rourke took to the streets of Dublin city centre for a preview on Today with Claire Byrne. Yes, some days are really good days in the office. This was a really nice office day because my office were the streets of Dublin. And I had a great day out there talking about books and more books and finding out lots more uh, weird and wonderful information about many of the city's most famous writers who we all know, Claire, of course, and take such pride in. But I got a chance to get a preview of just two of the many, many walking tours that will be on offer later this week through the festival. So the first tour we're talking about today is the Literary Walking Tour with Pat Liddy, who, of course, is the veteran tour guide. He knows every cobblestone in Dublin. And his plan is to guide his guests around Dublin City Centre, pointing out the significant and important quirky locations that have special connections with acclaimed writers from the 18th century to today. So we started standing there in the historic surrounds of Dublin Castle. That's where Pat began the tour with me and that's where he'll also be reading excerpts from the books as he makes his way around too. The wonder is when you tell people about Irish authors, be it George Bernard Shaw or Oscar Wilde and Bram Stoker and say they're Irish, their eyes open wide. Oh, I thought they were English. And we are walking around this older part of Dublin between Dublin Castle and St. Patrick's Cathedral pointing out various connections to some of our great literary figures and if I can point out something that has a direct connection or allusion to a writer bang on and we have one here in the lower yard a a magnificent one at the top right hand corner of the lower yard here were the offices of one Bram Stoker Ah. and Bram Stoker was an official employed in the castle as inspector of the Petty Sessions of Ireland and his first best-selling novel but it wasn't a novel it was a book he wrote to offer guidance to all the court officials around Ireland and it was called The Duties of the Clerks of the Petty Sessions of Ireland and even Bram Stoker said it was as dry as dust. So thankfully for us he moved on. (laughs) Now Bram Stoker is best known of course for Dracula and I'm just going to read you a little extract here in the shadow of the old record tower here of Dublin Castle with its gloomy dark walls. 
it's a perfect setting for the arrival of Jonathan Harker to Castle Dracula. And here's what happened. I heard a heavy step approaching behind the great door. And the great door swung back. Within stood a tall old man, clean-shaven save for a long white moustache, and clad in black from head to foot. He held in his hand an antique silver lamp. The old man motioned me in with his right hand with a courtly gesture, saying in excellent English, but with a strange intonation, Welcome to my house. Do you think Bram Stoker was inspired by any managers in Dublin Castle to create Dracula? (laughs) Actually, yes. I believe he was partly inspired by the corrupt aristocracy, which you saw every day in Dublin Castle. And it's the ordinary people who are the victims and eventually are the ones who triumph. Gosh, I was getting swept away there listening uh, to Pat. <laughs> so you left Dublin Castle, then you went onto the side street there, Ship Street, people might know it, to talk about Jonathan Swift. But even the name of the street itself is a talking point. Oh, this is one of those. When you step out of Dublin Castle, right, you see that road sign, which as Gaelga says, Shrod na yeah. But Sheep underneath street. it is the translation, but it says Ship Street. And Gaelga is Gaelga for sheep, as in yeah. ba. Not ship, which is both, right? So there's a little bit lost in translation so there. Is that a mistake? Country. How do, uh, do you Are know we, how that happened? I don't know how it happened. Um, you'll have to go on Pat's tour yeah. <laughs> to find out more about it. But he's just full of those kind of little bits and pieces. And you know what was interesting as well when I was going around to them was just seeing how many tourists are still around in Dublin, how many different tour guides are in action there. And you can see how that part of Dublin really is a, such a draw for tourists, you know. And we talked about that along the way, how he thinks we should be doing even more to celebrate our writers because he says tourists are so interested in hearing about the literary names and stories that we have here. It's a big draw, he says. But here, standing there on Ship Stroke, Sheep Street, uh, Pat tells us a little bit more about Jonathan Swift there at the back of Dublin Castle. We're now on Ship Street, but if you look at the Irish name, it should be Sheep Street. It, so, so something got lost in translation. Yeah, some official in Dublin Castle. And we've just come out the back way, really, out of Dublin Castle, onto this street. Onto this street. And here we are, uh, another spot. Yes, the site of the birthplace of Jonathan Swift. Did a lot for the poor of Dublin. His main work was in the work of satire. And all the books he wrote were really criticisms of the government, the way Ireland was governed, to the detriment of the people of Ireland. And at one stage, there was actually a price in his head for the books he wrote because he was so critical. People don't realise that. He could have been charged for treason. So he was very careful never to put his name in any of his books. Who wrote Gulliver's Travels? Lemuel Gulliver. Who wrote Drapier's Letters? Drapier. But they were really Jonathan Swift. And, of course, he was so mad with the poverty in Dublin that he wrote a great treatise called A Modest Proposal. I'll just read you a tiny little extract, but it could be upsetting. It says about children dying literally on the streets and we should do something. 1728 when he published it. I've been assured by a very knowing American of my acquaintance in London that a young healthy child, well nursed, is at a year old a most delicious, nourishing and wholesome food, whether stewed, roasted, baked or boiled. I remember reading that (laughs) and I mean it's shocking because it's so dark. That's so appalling to people that he's He's stirring their conscience, essentially. Is he a writer that your international tourists don't necessarily link with Dublin? No, he's up there. He's up there with Joyce, certainly. People have heard of him, but know very little about him. Bram Stoker is, I won't say ignored in Dublin, but there's no statue to him. He's underappreciated and he's far better known across the world than James Joyce. A what? Yes. Oh, stop. You're uh, in trouble now. Yes, but people in China, people in Japan, people in India. 
People in non-English speaking countries would know Bram Stoker before they would know James Joyce. That's he, just a fact. He has a unique insight into how we're seen. And, you know, yeah, Controversial, but you know, he's getting the, the first hand take <laughs> from the people coming in. Interesting. Now, one of the uh, important aspects of celebrating our literary heritage here is continuing to focus on the women writers and making sure that their stories are being told too. Is that happening? Oh, Claire, like we all know the big names, you know, the Beans and O'Casey's and Yates, but there are other fascinating tours so necessary and important to keep celebrating women writers. And one that caught my eye was a tour called Radical Women in the Irish Revolution Walking Tour. Great title. And this tour, Irish poet Julie Morrissey, will bring the research work that she's been doing on the women in Irish Revolution to life. And her tour begins at St. James's Church. That's her onion, Eamon Kant were married. She will move right across the Dublin 8 area where she lives and knows so well before continuing on to Kilmainham Jail. So during the tour Julie will share the poems that she's written herself her own poetry, stories, insights about the locations and the historical landmarks uh, and that will all feed into her tour about celebrating and highlighting women's role within all this. So here I met up with Julie in the heart of Dublin city centre where she told me more about this work. The idea is to follow the steps of the women in the revolutionary period around Dublin 8, where a lot of the activity was concentrated, but also to follow my own steps as I wrote the work, trying to bring the kind of locations around me where I lived and where I would have been walking when I was making the work, especially because I started this in kind of peak COVID, where we could only walk two kilometres or five kilometres. So I would take myself out and take photographs and then kind of write the poems based on that work. Tell me about the places around Dublin 8 that are fascinating for you. Yeah, so we're going to start the tour on James's Street at St. James's Church, which is where Anya Kant and Eamon Kant got married in 1909. So it's it's a really important place for the rising. And then we're going to walk towards Kamenum Jail. So down along Mount Brown, we'll stop at Kant Fort, which is the neighbourhood where I live, and kind of take a look. Maybe I'll read some poems and then we'll continue on down to Kilmainham Jail. And I suppose what I found most fascinating about making this work is how we're surrounded everywhere in Dublin by history and maybe stories that we don't know especially about the women because often there's not plaques or there's not memorials to the same extent that there are for say the men that were involved. Tell me about one of your favourite women that you've you know looked into that makes you smile that you love telling her story introduce us to that character. We will be following the footsteps of the women who were marched from Marrowbone Lane down to Kilmainham Jail after the surrenders. We'll be thinking about figures like Lily O'Brennan who's Anya Kant's sister just stopping along the way and hearing some poems and this poem is called Lily it's after Lily O'Brennan a writer and a member of Coming a Man. She also worked to locate the graves of volunteers who were killed in the rising and she was responsible for marking them. Lily. After the rising Lily followed the dead found unmarked graves and marked them commemorated made sure the men were honoured. Imagine her feet that search, her determination to make absolutely certain we would remember the men. That's Julie and we're going to go back to Pat Liddy's tour now. You've made your way down to St. Patrick's Cathedral and what did you talk talk about there Evelyn? This was really interesting. You know I thought I knew my Dublin right because I've done lots of these bits and pieces. Nobody told me about the writer's trail inside on the wall. So you know you go into the cathedral on the left hand side there there's a beautiful walk all the way down. Grab your coffee on a Sunday and go for a wander and a plaque there for so many acclaimed Irish writers including Eilish Dillon. This is in the grounds of the cathedral. The grounds of St. Patrick's Ah. Cathedral 
Yeah. I'm mortified that I didn't know this and there's me thinking I'd done all the tours. So just to say the festival does start this week on Wednesday, runs until Sunday and you can go to talks and walks about all sorts of aspects of the book world from political writing to climate change writing to workshops to industry talks about how to get published and everything like that and more and more walking tours as well and all information on the programme can be found at dublinbookfestival.com and yes that is a sneaky insight go into St. Patrick's Cathedral keep the cathedral on your right hand side and walk down the left we have a little video on our Twitter feed as well where people can have a little look at it as well but here to end Pat Liddy uh, ends up talking about Brendan Bean so we'll hear a little bit of the man himself in the middle of that this bit as well but he also spoke about the reasons that he was so acclaimed and celebrated by readers we're in St. Patrick's Park. This is right beside the cathedral here. It's, it's beautiful. The, when you come in off Bride Street, it's the best view you can get of St. Patrick's Cathedral. And in the arches, they have a little plaque to most of the famous, mostly men, Dublin writers of international renown, like Samuel Beckett and uh, Oscar Wilde, Yeats and Shaw and all those people. But we're standing in front of the plaque of Brendan Behan. He died at the young age of 41. And he served time... Because of his young age, he wasn't put into an adult prison. He was put into a junior prison for young people called a Borstal. I mean, that's where his great play, The Borstal Boy. And he also wrote The Queer Fellow. So his plays are all extremely powerful. But in his lifetime, he was well known, sometimes for the wrong reasons, his heavy drinking and so forth, which undid him in the end, very sadly. He was so funny and clever. Yes. Yeah. Well, here's an interesting one. And he was asked, Mr. Bean, can you explain to us the difference between prose and poetry? He says, I can there was a young boy called Rollox who worked for Ferrier Pollux. He took the girl by the hand and walked in the strand and the tide came up to his knees. Now, that's prose. If the tide was in, it would be poetry. <laughs> so you like celebrating him? Yes, I do, but they're all very different and they all come from different backgrounds. Along this list of people, you have the Anglo-Irish, stuffy, in inverted commas, and then you have the people like Brendan Bean that came up with hard knocks and they had their own story to tell. I had a book band here, Marshall Boy, and they said, uh, what do you think of it? I said, trouble me. The Irish are not my audience, they are my raw material. So you could really spend an hour just walking along this little part of the park and discussing the differences. And that is Irish right. It's about difference. It's about representing your background, where you come from, your story. And it never ends. Pat Liddy there, ending Evelyn O'Rourke's report for Today with Claire Byrne. Earlier on the nine o'clock show, Oliver Callan was celebrating the works of Stock Aiken Waterman. And in case you're wondering who that is, well, have a listen to this.
Bang. Uh, that is a dander through the hits of Stock Ake and Waterman era. There were three men who simply changed music forever. And we're very honoured today because one of them is in studio with us for a special announcement. Pete Waterman, welcome to Dublin, sir. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, we'll come to the, the exciting announcement later on. Uh, the Borgosh Energy Theatre is a sneak, is a sneak reference. We'll, we'll a come sneak to reference. <laughs> I was looking at Some you there. Some sneak that one. Let's be honest. Yeah, we'll we'll come to it. Um, I was watching you there, listening to the hits. Uh, you're incredibly proud, I'd say. There's a there's oh, a yeah. smile across your face. Yeah, well, you 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 summed it up. At the, the you know the eighties weren't as good as we all thought they were. The truth, <laughs> you know, it was pretty dire. Um, but we sort of we didn't we sort of didn't care we just saw that, that, that there was a, a whole market of, of of people that just wanted to have some fun yeah and particularly radio you see because you, you know you come out of the news which could be pretty drastic at that time it is it still what is. do you play how do you get out of the news you know you know you've just announced a terrible event and you've got to get on with your radio show you want your listeners to be up and just whack on Rick Astley and away you went. Everybody, the world has changed again. Yeah. It just brings us to a happy place. Um, I want to start with your origin story because it's very interesting, if you'll allow us, because the, the, obviously the music you want to make defines a whole generation and it enthralls the younger kids as well who, you know, yeah. who think the 80s were brilliant because of some of the songs. Where did you start out? Well, I started out in, in obviously in the very early 50s, uh, listening to American radio, you know, the American Forces Network. Yeah. And, um, you know, I became a music fan. And, you know, I was lucky, 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 quickly. Let's get that joke over. Um, I worked with the Beatles as their their first ever gig as the Beatles. They were John Lennon and the Silver Beatles the night before. And, you know, we're talking 1962. Amazing. And that that just changed my life. I mean, once I saw that, I saw that concert. They're not like concerts we know today. I mean, this is just a... You know, play forty-five minutes and a cup of tea in between, and it just changed my life. It was like, you know, I remember they walked onto stage. Firstly, I'd never seen an act with long hair. I mean, long hair then it actually reached their ears. That's how long yeah, it yeah, was. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, and they and they just, you know, their, their own PA. You know, the, the public address system. I'd never seen a band that had got that. You know, and McCartney walked up to me, one, two, three, four, and I thought, wow, what is this? And it was like punk. It was exactly like punk 20 years later. It was so exciting, you know. Just changed everything. Just changed everything, and, and, you know. And that was an amazing moment because you were an early school leaver, isn't that right? You? I was 14, yeah. 14. And uh, literacy issues on, until quite an adult. Oh, I didn't. I couldn't read or write till I was in my 30s. That's astonishing for what you go on to achieve. Well, I think if you're not good at something, you make it up in another way. I was a, I was a good singer. I mean, I was a choir boy up until I was 18. You know, my voice didn't break till I was 18. And I mean, that's, you know, you, you know, you stand in a choir at 18 singing soprano and you look a right Burke, you know. So, <laughs> you know, that was... And then, of course, when the Beatles came out, um, the first thing you do is you, you pick up your guitar, uh, guitar and try and learn or, or you, you bluff it, but you just sing along. Uh, and the great thing is you, you meet the two fellas, Stock yeah. Ake and Waterman, uh, and, and the deal is done in the pub. Is that, is that when the whole thing begins? Well, yeah, we couldn't actually think of what to call ourselves. So, you know, I'm a Motown fanatic. I, you know, love Motown. And so we decided to call ourselves, um, what we call ourselves, do we call ourselves Waterman, Aiken and Stock? Because I'd already been successful. Yeah. So I said, look, let's put the ha- names in a hat. And we draw them out and it came out Stock, Aiken, Waterman. Oh, that's the, that's uh, the way. And Matt Aiken said, we sound like a firm of solicitors. I said, better that we be a firm of accountants. 
right. <laughs> that was the direction you were going. So they were very much in the studio, weren't they? And yeah. you're the ideas. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, what we did was we worked out, um, because I, as I say, I've been successful before that. Mm. And I knew that you couldn't be in the studio past nine o'clock at night. So I knew there was a finite time you were creative. And after that, the creativity dips. Right. So I, you know, I'd come up with a method of working, which was you start at 11, you take your meal break at five for an hour, and then you only work to nine o'clock and that's it. And then at nine o'clock, we used to go down to the pub, have a brief till half past 10, 11 o'clock. They would go home. I would go to bed for an hour and then I'd get up at two o'clock in the morning and I'd work through the night and I'd go to bed at seven o'clock in the morning. Really? And they, yeah. And, and so that's how we did it. Because uh, so, the, the, what it sounds like, the bit in the pub is work as well. Oh, it was, yeah. Yeah, and, yeah it, was, it was serious. I mean, that was, that was the only time we really got to sit down and discuss or write whatever we were doing. I mean, you know... That night, we, you know, we, we'd, you know, what we're about to announce is like, we had like, we, who's in tomorrow? Well, Kylie's in. Have we got a song? Well, no. <laughs> um, well, we better write one. Okay, so, uh, you know, you'd sit there with a pint and you'd write the ideas. And quite often with an artist, they'd actually be in the studio where you're still writing a song. The artist, by the way, never knew this. They, they think no, this, no, you've they, been working for weeks. We the, yeah, yeah, well, yeah. We've, we've had this song weeks, yeah, especially <laughs> written for you, of course it is. Yeah, it's your song. And the truth was, no, it, it was... I remember Better the Devil You Know, we were actually writing while Kylie was in the studio. Really? So we were sitting one side of the glass looking at Mike, not looking at Kylie, so she couldn't see our faces. And we were writing the lyrics down and holding them up like this, you know, as if we were the judges and Mike was going, oh, yeah, and, uh, and he would write it down and then that was the way it worked. Uh, Kylie, has, she's described you as the ringmaster of, of the circus. Yeah, I guess. Well, I was the oldest, so I guess <laughs> I was like dad. You know, it's like... Um, but I, I knew, because of my background in radio, I knew timing was important. I knew when you got on a roll, you had to keep on that roll. Right. You know, you couldn't go on holiday for six months or you couldn't, you know, do that, you know. I just knew that, that, that it, if we could keep it going five, six years, it would be amazing because nobody ever keeps it going five or six years. The hit factory wasn't a snappy kind of moniker. It was really a factory by the sounds of it with shifts going out. Going well, because I'd, I'd worked in a factory and, you know, like Motown, I'd understood that there is a finite time when people can be creative. You know, you, I know, you know, when we worked with Pete Burns, he wanted to be in the studio all night. And, and I said, no, 10 o'clock, I want to be in bed with my pyjamas on and watching the telly and go to sleep. And, you know, I'll see you tomorrow morning at 11 o'clock. But you kind of pull an all-nighter, do you, for Pete Burns' that hit, Spin Me Around? I did, yes. I had to... Broke your own rules. God, I think I worked 36 hours on that record. Really? Yeah, I mean, the irony, the irony of that is it works because I made a mistake. And the thing that everybody remembers about that record is the arpeggio. Diddle, 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 diddle. That shouldn't have even been in there. It should have only ever been in the chorus. I left it in because I was so tired I didn't <laughs> right. even notice it. Okay. And, and that's what went on to well, make it the big hit. It's a huge hit. Yeah. Does that launch the thing properly? Now, you had success, obviously, up to that point. Yeah. But that's a huge yeah, that, that, changing that, moment. Yes, it was. That was a game-changing moment. I mean, Mel and Kim really broke us. Uh, but um, Spin Me Round had it. I mean, that was... A worldwide number one. I mean, and it's it's still today sounds like no other record on the radio. It just no. because there's no real instruments on that record at all. 
It's all computers. It's the coolest tune. Yeah, and, and Pete was brilliant. I mean, absolutely outrageous. Yeah, it was And so they start queuing out the door, the stars. Some of them already established yes. looking for um, the stock Aiken Waterman to produce a hit for them. Yeah. Uh, Some ran the other way, by the way. You know, <laughs> The record companies threatened them. If you don't write a hit, I'll send you the stock Aiken Waterman. <laughs> <laughs> we'll come to that because the reputation but as it's growing after particularly um, Pete Burns Dead or Alive and Spin Me Around uh, Banana Rama come to you as well but you mentioned Mel and Kim I mean this is a chance encounter with, with somebody is it that you that, that was the luckiest day of my life luckiest day of my life to um, a mate of mine we'd had a, a, a record by Princess Sammy number one and I, I I found the artist and I didn't want to put a, you know I didn't want to put the record out myself because I just wanted to concentrate on writing and producing. So I gave the record to a mate who was a great promotion guy, I and mean, we'd had a hit with it. And these two girls turned up at my door. So I rang Nick and said, Nick, you, you, you come and see these two kids. And we took them down the pub afterwards. And, well, you know, I was single at the time, Matt was single, and these are two very attractive young girls. Mm. And so we, we go down the pub and we thought we'd buy them a drink, you know, and having a conversation. They were from round the corner. And I said... Well, girls, what do you normally do on a Friday night? Because it was a Friday night. Yeah. They were, we, we go kissing frogs. Sorry. We go, because you've got to remember we're a bit older than them, yeah. right? We go kissing frogs. And I said, what does that mean? Well, we go down the old Kent Road, which is roughly where we were in South London. And um, any bloke can buy us a drink, but if he hasn't got a, a Rolex wash and he ain't got a Porsche key ring, he ain't taking us home. <laughs> and I thought, this is brilliant. This is what, you know, this is the 80s. This, this is the chat that's actually going on. At this this is, I'm thinking, yeah. wow, this is amazing. Let's turn these two girls into the opposite from a bloke. So the blokes aren't chatting them up, they're chatting the blokes up. Yeah. Which is exactly what we did, you know, and, and we put ourselves in their position. So we were writing songs as if we were Mel and Kim. Yeah. You know. And they became, they were hugely relatable and, because they were oh, authentic, yeah. weren't they? Yeah. Yeah, and I mean that when we got to respectable, um, just you, you, it's such an it, it was such a moment, you know. We just saw the the, the reaction from from phones on radio and and te television on one appearance on you know on, on Saturday morning television and like boom, it's number one. I mean, it was just because they were so different. Nobody had ever done that before. Two cheeky girls, and they were funny. I mean, Mel. <laughs> God rest her soul. She was the funniest human being. And she died very young. That's a very sad young, thing. Yeah, isn't it? So yeah. she's got one amazing album, and yep. then sadly she yep. she yep. she has cancer and dies very young. She'd had cancer. We didn't know this at the time. She'd had cancer before we met her, so um, she was in remission. Um, but we were in Japan, and she was dancing, and suddenly she collapsed, and we, we took her to hospital, and that's when they they diagnosed that she she got. To leukemia, desperately, and so. we had to fly back. And then, but you know what? She never ever lost her fun, and even when she lost all her hair, she insisted in coming in the studio. And even though she knew her days were numbered, she she still laughed right up to the last minute. And you wrote a song for for the yeah, you know that's the way it is. You you got all the world is your oyster, and then suddenly something strikes you down. And that's just the way it is. You can't, you can't beat it.
Pete Waterman on the 9 o'clock show with Oliver Callan and you can listen to the interview in full on rte.ie slash radio. Always a popular item on the programme, clinical child psychologist and parenting expert Dr David Coleman joined Claire Byrne. My nine-year-old frequently has tantrums when he's playing sport, which result in him shouting, crying or even hitting a teammate. It's based on his perception of fairness and he gets really wound up. He absolutely adores sport. He talks about little else, but it's really annoying the coaches and I'm afraid they'll soon stop him playing. He has sensory processing disorder and tends to be quite hyper. He gets additional support at school, but he comes across as more emotionally immature than his peers. We've had many conversations with him about his behaviour at team sport activities, but nothing seems to work. Can you please advise us how to support him to manage his frustrations when they arise? We just don't know how to break the cycle but removing him from sports would break his heart. So, David, what do you think? Yeah, there's a lot going on there. And um, I mean, I suppose the starting point is probably the fact that he has a sensory processing disorder. And so what that means is that he, you know, how he's making sense of all these different uh, things that are coming to him, you know, in the middle of sports between the noise and uh, the movement on the pitch, all that kind of stuff that might well be overwhelming for him. Then you've got the fact that he's nine and nine year olds, you know, if they're playing sports, tend to play very competitively, but actually can't bear the competition of it and can't bear to lose and can't bear anything. That means uh, the slightest bit of disappointment when it comes to sport. And so all of that then is probably uh, being, you know, kind of coming to a head when he's actually out there playing. And so. Some of that, you know, will change over time. So his his understanding of of you know coping with disappointment and the competitive element element of it that will that will hopefully change as he gets a little bit older. The sensory processing though it may not necessarily change, and so I I'd be very tempted from from that parent's perspective to talk to the coaches, just to alert them to the additional needs that he has because they may be seeing him or treating him as if he's just like every other child on the pitch, and of course it may not be the case that that he is you. Know, know and and has all the same uh, you know kind of skills and strategies for dealing with stresses and and feeling overwhelmed that other children have so talk to the coaches just because i think that means that they might be just a little bit more tolerant and so your fear that they're going to get really cross and that they're going to actually stop him from playing um you know might not come to fruition and then it's about spending an awful lot of time with him on his emotions in terms of empathizing with him helping him recognize and and make sense of uh, these feelings that he has because the the first stage to regulating an emotion is even to being able to uh, recognize what it is and to spot it and to to notice it while it's happening so that you can then hopefully do something to you know alleviate or change the intensity of it so lots and lots of emotional uh, support work with him from the parents will also help him then when he does feel things are unjust or unfair or when he is overwhelmed that he might be just a little bit better able to cope but you're not suggesting removing him from sports if this becomes too big a problem uh, look, you know, sports sounds like it's such a great outlet for him. I mean, this is the irony of it for for this young lad, you know. And and so, imagine if he didn't have sport as some outlet. You know, frustration is probably going to build up in other circumstances anyway. And um, and if he didn't have an outlet where where some of that could be run off, then it could be just something really really difficult. So no, I think if you can at all try and keep him w- within the sports and within the teams that he's in, um, but definitely talk to the coaches and. Uh, 
and and do, maybe even actually talk to his teachers and see how do they help and what do they do in school yeah, because they might again, have school would be a very tips. overwhelming yeah be a very overwhelming environment for him as well potentially and maybe they've got some really good strategies that work and, and if those can be brought then to the sports that might also help Alright here's a, another one now one of my children is a high achiever and does really well in sports and in school this is great for her but tough for her younger sister who's six and really struggles to understand why she doesn't win medals or get top marks in school. We've tried to explain to her that she will find things that she's really good at when she gets older and that it's more important just to enjoy what she's doing rather than to win. But it doesn't seem to be getting through. It also means that when our older girl is successful, we have to temper the way we praise her achievements so as not to upset the younger one. I'd appreciate any advice on how to handle this. So it sounds like they're on um, tiptoes around the place. David? Yeah, it's so difficult because, of course, you absolutely want to be able to celebrate the successes and the achievements of of your child who's successful and achieving. Um, and yet, you know, here they are with this real sensitivity to the impact that it might be having on, on her younger sister. So great that they have that sensitivity. Um, and, and so what I'd suggest maybe is, you know, do find time when you're on your own with your older girl to give her all the feedback that you really want to be able to give her that perhaps you don't feel you can give her when she's uh, in the company of her sister so that she does get the acknowledgement for for what she is putting into things and and the outcomes that she's getting and then when it comes to the younger sister maybe um what you can do kind of when the two girls are together when the younger sister is there on her own is to focus less on achievement and outcome and more on effort and um how hard they each or either of them work at whatever it is that they're doing because i think it's really interesting when you look at um some of the studies that have been done on how we praise children and and when we praise outcome and achievement rather than praising effort children when they get a little bit older tend to struggle more whereas children who've been acknowledged for their effort tend to be much more successful as they grow older because that what they continue to do is put in lots and lots of effort which almost inevitably will be rewarded um in terms of of outcomes but but if you're only focused on outcome if you believe for example that you're a clever child because that's what everybody's ever, always told you um then you kind of rely on your cleverness uh, rather than on the effort or the work that you're putting in. So that might be the, the shift to take with the younger sister as well. Focus on how diligent she is, how much she applies herself to whether it's schoolwork or sports or whatever it is. And and as they are doing, focus less on, on the achievements, but <clears throat> but just focus on the effort that she's putting in. Okay, that's good advice across the board, isn't it? If the evidence is showing us that that gets you the best results in general and over time to focus on on the effort that they're putting in. Yeah, and I think as well, the other thing to remember when we are acknowledging children or praising them is to be really specific in the praise. So rather than just saying, oh, you're great, just say, oh, the way you did this particular thing was great, or oh, the level of effort you put in. I could see that you were working so hard for that 15 or 20 minutes and you managed to get that whole question done for your homework. Well done. As opposed to saying, oh, great, you got your homework done. So yes. it's just about being really specific about the behaviours that you're seeing, because, again, that helps children know what it is that they're doing. That's good. All right. Here's one now. It's, it's, it's sad. And I know a lot of people will face this situation. But this listener says my mother is very ill and I'd like to try and tell my children that she might not have long to live. They're in the lower end of primary school, so they're very young. What's the best way to talk about dying and death with children without scaring them? I'm afraid I'll get very upset. Is it OK for them? to see me upset. 
Oh goodness, yeah. What a what a difficult situation that is. Uh, uh, there's again a couple of things. You know, generally, I think it's always good for children to see and experience our feelings as long as we're able to help them make some sense of those feelings. So put it into context. And so I, you know, I I don't think we need ever be afraid of uh, you know demonstrating or showing our feelings to our children. And so if we if we're in an upsetting situation, I think it's okay that they see that we're upset because what they get then is a congruence or a fit between the feeling and, and the circumstance and that again helps them make sense of why different feelings become present in our lives why we experience different feelings so i'd be i wouldn't be too worried about the the getting upset um i guess in terms of talking with them about death and dying it might be useful to talk about that in the abstract a little bit first as opposed to talking about their granny and so maybe if there are other opportunities where uh, you know you're aware of i don't know maybe a friend's pet who died or if there's any talk of death or, or whatever in in the the new oh, well, there's plenty of it in the news. I suppose you probably wouldn't be exposing your young children to the news. Certainly not these days. Mm-hmm. Um, but but just taking opportunities where death has come up in 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 you know in the environment for them and and talking about death and what it means and how it can be something that's very sad. And then it may seem that you know once they the that the children are aware that that you know, what this thing is about death or, or that you're talking about death, maybe they might put two and two together in terms of their granny. It depends on how often they get to see their granny currently or what sense they even have of their granny's illness. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's you know, sometimes with very young children, it's not so much about preparing them for something that might happen or that will happen in due course. Rather, it's about being available when the thing happens. And so that might be something that's, you know, maybe a little bit more um, going to be a little bit more useful. It's, it's just been ready uh, to, to respond if and when um, you, the, that mum's mum dies. And again, it might be the case that she's going to need, you know, somebody else to be emotionally available for her children for a very short period of time because she herself would be just really distressed about her mum dying. And so that's okay as well. And and it's just about making sure that somebody's tuned into where the children are as well in terms of their feelings and hopefully giving them opportunities to at least explore, if not actually express somewhat so the, got the to, feelings might be. You've got to try and prepare for the event and have somebody there maybe who can help you because the likelihood is you won't be in a fit state to to deal with that on top of your own grief. Exactly. And so that might be a close family friend or a partner if, you, if that mum has a partner. and uh, But just somebody who's going to kind of have an eye, particularly at key times like funerals and so on. And, and you know, I think it's great for children to come to family funerals. I'd, I'd always be slow to suggest, you know, kind of leaving children out of those kinds of events because I think it's part of the whole process that we have. And and certainly in Ireland, I think we're really good at managing death and, and you know, all of the different, um, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, not habits. Um, all the different things that we do around death, we just do them very well. The and, rituals, and so yeah. Rituals. Thank you, Claire. God. <laughs> Dr. David Coleman on Today with Claire Byrne. And that's all we have time for on this edition of Playback Daily. So from me, Louise Herity, thanks for listening and take care. <laughs>